Okay, this is a first of its kind uh, episode here for the Ortho Show podcast. We're bringing on Dr. Jawad Saleh, who is a PharmD, which is a, a PhD in pharmacy. Uh, really a hotshot guy, man. He's got a lot going on. He is uh, basically the clinical manager of pharmacy services at HSS. So what does that mean? It means that literally he runs this pharmacy team and these pharmacists are part of all of the aspects of healthcare, whether it's in the intensive care unit, they're part of the operating room, uh, and they're basically a part of the team when they're rounding and they bring their expertise of pharmacy to the clinicians, which basically really amplifies and improves the patient care. He's passionate about opioid sparing and we talk about that, about a lot of the modalities that are available as well. And really, I think it's a fascinating episode for you to be educated on a part of healthcare, which you may not know. It was a pleasure having him on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. We are super excited. We are going to have our first pharmacist on the Ortho Show, uh, Jawad Saleh, who's a PharmD, which is basically a PhD in pharmacology as a pharmacist. He's the clinical manager of pharmacy services at the world-renowned Hospital for Special Surgery. He's also an assistant clinical professor at St. John's School of Pharmacy, and he is one of my go-to opioid-sparing superhero pharmacists. Jawad, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Should I be wearing a cape? What's going on here, man? You got to <laughs> be excited. I feel Dude, like you, I can take over the world. You got the cap. You got the white coat, man. You got to keep the cape <laughs> under wraps, man. That's what we do. We're hey, I have no hair. I got to wear the cap and the coat is to, you know... You know, keep the it's body a, in tune. It, it's a good contrast between me, between you and I, for sure. I love <laughs> that. So listen, so we always start at the beginning on the show. We always like to know where, where our guests come from. So, you know, where were you born? What's your story? Are you the first, you know, PharmD? Are there doctors? How, how did you get to where you are today? Um, honestly, I think I'm a, I think I'm a perfect example of an underdog. There's, I mean, I'm not. I'm sure there's many stories like mine. I mean, we're in New York City where, you know, I, I grew up born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm the son of Palestinian immigrant parents. Um, my parents worked really hard. I, I would, would go back and forth to the Middle East. They take me when I was a kid. Um, so um, I, I didn't grow up really with a silver spoon. I did grow up with a hardworking dad that helped me a mom that came from somewhat of an education, uh, educated family who really came to this country and continued to study. Um, uh, so I don't want to take away from them, but it really, I grew up on Atlantic Avenue. It's in, in Brooklyn and it wasn't, it wasn't very easy at times, of course, but you know, uh, in, a, in a very weird way, I wouldn't have it any, any other way because it really, when you make it out, you are resilient and you feel really good and you can take on the world. And believe it or not, um, I know this sounds really weird. It really helps you in the corporate world and it helps you in a room full of different personalities because you've learned to be around that so much. You know, we've heard that a lot. The, the children of immigrant families whose parents come over, who do the extra struggle to make sure that their children, you know, as the next generation could be more successful, you know, than they are. So, 
you know, you, 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 you were in this environment and, but yet you worked hard. Your parents had, you know, great expectations for you and, and you didn't want to disappoint either. And so you worked hard, you study hard. And next thing you know, you're at St. John's university studying and where was it destined at that moment that you had an idea as to what your long-term strategy or plan was? Uh, I was in high school. Um, I wasn't sure at the time, um, you know, I seen, you know, I've had family members and friends come out of hospitals or clinics with prescription medications that were addicted to them or had issues because of them. I was really fascinated to some degree by why this was happening and what caused this. Um, and then, you know, you'd walk over to your own neighborhood and you walk down the street again, you know how New York is, you could be in a great neighborhood in one second and bad in the next. And you see people on you know, addicted to drugs and chemicals that are causing these reactions. So I was really interested in the pharmacology side. Um, I left high school at, I think it was 16, a year and a half early, went to St. John's, started pharmacy, and uh, I really liked the whole field. That's interesting because, you know, in that time, if that time frame, we're knee deep in the opioid crisis. You know, we've got Purdue Pharma, you've got J&J, you've got all the big pharma companies that are are, are sort of you know, sort of not, I don't want to use the word pushing because I don't want to get people pissed off, but there was no question that there was, uh, uh, opioids were being touted as the solution for pain management. And we didn't understand it, right? Why are all of these patients addicted to medication? Are they bad people, right? Or they're not making the right decisions or they come from the wrong side of the tracks and that's how this happens, but that's not the case, right? Opioid addiction doesn't care about your bank account or your zip code. You know, if you're destined to it, you're going to get it. And so in the in 2002 or so, when you're at St. John's, I mean, you're living there, you're in Brooklyn, you see it. and But yet at the same time, there was no explanation as to why. It was the standard of care, right? We're providing yeah. opioids for everyone perioperatively for long-term pain management. Didn't matter. We're going to give you opioids. And so I think it's interesting that you chose very early on in your surroundings that you wanted a, a pharmacy career to understand why that was happening. Yeah, and it was... Uh... It's interesting because, uh, you know, you got to look at us as a society, right? I, I, uh, I'm i leaving to Ghana next week. I, I was there six months ago, and it the tolerance for pain, that culture, that community is so different than our top. So I asked them, I don't understand you guys. I went to the supply chain issues, and, and we spoke to the, you know, the health advisor to the president of the country, and what's going on? You guys can't get hydromorphone, or what's happening here? What's, what's you know, what are you guys doing? And it's, it's no, no, we can and it's, I don't understand. And it's like, uh, you know, they tolerate it. It's just, they tolerate it. And again, I don't know to which threshold or level is this, does it become ethically sound, but they just tolerate it more. They handle it and deal with it versus, you know, we just want everything, you know, done and comfortable and it's almost unrealistic expectations, which we're getting there. We're getting there with strategies and innovations. Yeah, we're doing better than, than we have. And, you know, so what you're describing is that, you know, in Ghana in particular, patients, if, if they have surgery and other things, they just they just deal with their pain. There, there's no automatic prescription of opioids. My dear friend, Michael Redler, and I, uh, as part of One World Surgery, have been down to Honduras. We're going back again in December. You know, we operate on these patients. We're doing four to five patients per OR per day in three operating rooms, and no one gets opioids. It's just not done. I mean, We'll use long-acting anesthetics to help them with their initial pain for the first 24 hours or so. 
But literally, the, you give them Tylenol, and, they're no, and there's no anticipation or expectation of opioids. So it really became a uniquely American, you know, phenomenon. So, all right. So let do me a favor. Let, first of all, let's educate our listeners. Okay. So people think of pharmacists, they think of CVS, they go in, they put their, you know, their prescriptions in, but you know, you have an, you know, an established extended degree. You're a PharmD, basically it's a PhD in pharmacy. Describe for our listeners as to what the process of that is. And then what you do that is so different and unique than, than your average everyday pharmacist. Sure. So, um, uh, not to discredit them, we retail pharmacists are amazing. We have, we have, uh, we need them. They deal with a lot, and they have a, a whole different skill set. Um, I decided to go into more of the clinical realm, the more clinical operational realm. Um, and what does that entail? It entails getting almost a specialty um, in a specific field. Um, I'm board certified in critical care as well as pharmacotherapy. Um, we have specific specialties. Um, there's residencies when you want to get into this. Um, there's a clinical team in a hospital pharmacy, for example. Uh, I like to call them the Navy SEALs of the, the pharmacy, right? We go into the, you know, the code blue signal ones. Um, we have an infectious disease pharmacist. There's different pharmacists stationed everywhere. I helped build that in HSS. Um, so we got our team here. Um, I started off the first decade here in operations to understand purely just operations. Um, the last seven years, I've built out the clinical team and the clinical pharmacy program. Um, but what that also entails is some quality, of course, a lot of quality metrics. And I think the the next chapter is going to be more in the leadership realm, clinical leadership, to help oversee and make some of these decisions that should be happening from the top down. No, I love that. What a wonderful explanation. And I think that, you know, the clinical operation side of pharmacy, you know, and I love your, your love your Navy SEALs analogy, um, you know, as we become more expert at things, it becomes a much more narrowed field, right? So as a, as a shoulder expert, you know, I know everything there is to know about the shoulder, but uh, if you're in a trauma, the trauma doctors know everything there is to know about you know, fixing all things, but but the way in which those seventeen different pharmacologic agents may be going on in a patient that's in an intensive care unit, how they all interact is your area of expertise, and you can walk in and bam, be able to explain to them. And you're making rounds with the teams, right? You're providing that counsel day to day, which really elevates the games of the of the physicians that you're working with and provides really the best possible care for patients. So kudos to you in establishing that at HSS. Thank you. I think uh, also, you know, what ends up happening too when you're in this field is the more you're involved, the more you get involved in research and innovations as well. So you, you just keep taking it up a level as you go. You learn it, you understand it, you give your expertise, your ideas around it. And like you said, yes, you're in direct patient care is more on the clinical side. You're rounding on a daily basis. And I'm in the operating room regularly, regularly in and out um, all the time. So yeah, it's a whole different. Yeah, it's it's a different species, man. And uh, and it really makes a huge difference. And, you know, I I, I do some, some consulting with pharmaceutical companies and when I do, you know, when I get up there and I give my talks and sort of explain on the clinical side of what I'm doing, man, is it cool to have one of you dudes on the panel with me when they start asking the hard questions about the pharma pharmacologics of the uh, of the medications? Like, no, that's that, that's not the hard questions go over to Jawad for sure. But uh, no, that's really great stuff. So appreciate that for sure. You know, so Jawad, so let's roll the camera backwards to like 2012. You know, you've been in practice now for five, six years. You know, I'm I'm in as well. I've been doing it for about eight, seven, eight years. 
and it, just the opioid crisis was just in full swing, right? It, it's it's the you know it's nurses with with pain um, uh, pain being a vital sign and questionnaires going out to patients and Jayco telling us we have to treat our patients' pain with opioids. And we just had so many patients that were really addicted to opioids, but we didn't understand it. We didn't know why. And then all of a sudden, there's sort of a transition where there's some new medications come, come out, long-acting anesthetics, but they were, they were really hard to push through because people didn't want to pay for them. What was your experience back about a decade ago? The experience changed dramatically. I think the culture's changing. I think there's more awareness. Uh, in the past... You know, PNT is the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, and that's really sort of like the police of the organization of bringing in a medication. Pharmacy has a lot of weight in that committee. It's a multidisciplinary committee. Uh, and now with these ERAS protocols, right, enhanced recovery after surgery, uh, the multimodal uh, trend that's uh, in every organization that they've been pushing to cut down on opioids, um, innovative ways and new medications um, have been the wave of the future and what's been happening since. And that's the difference. You know, it's interesting. When I first started doing some talks for uh, liposomal bupivacaine in particular, you know, it was rotten tomatoes, man. I'd walk into to a, a dining room or, or a, a restaurant and there'd be like four people there and I'd start talking about opioid sparing. They look at me like I was crazy. Like, why do we need to do that? You know, like, what's the problem? And then slowly and over time with, with people understanding and, and clinical pharmacists like yourself who can really review the data and the literature and be able to demonstrate that spending some money on the front side of the epidemic will save us money and lives on the back side of the epidemic. I was just down at Shoulder 360 in Miami, uh, a wonderful course with shoulder surgeons from all over the world. And I, I just was sitting there in the audience and there were four shoulder surgeons up there talking about opioid sparing surgery uh, as part of what they do with, you know, 400 people in the audience. And I was just smiling, you know, thinking to myself, how far we've come in a decade to be able to message that people really believe in it now. And we have leaders like yourself that are out there on the pharmacy side that can prove that this stuff really does matter. You know, breaking through all of the silos of pharmacy and, and those things and understanding that, you know, the ER is connected to the hospital where you may have people that are having opioid addiction issues. And so you're losing money in there as well in the hospital. But yet, if you use more expensive medications, we can hopefully uh, prevent some of those opioid addiction uh, issues as well. So let's talk a little bit about um, about your thoughts on some of the evidence that's out there right now, right? Because you're really out there with your team evaluating the literature to really say what works and, and what doesn't work. So so tell us what, what, is a, what are your thoughts right now on some of the opioid sparing tactics that you're using at HSS to be able to help out with your patients? One of the, I think here, we're really big on regional anesthesia. And one thing in pharmacy school that really isn't taught much is anesthesia or regional anesthesia and nerve blocks, right? And um, I think that, believe it or not, you know, that is, it's a, it's somewhat of a boring topic to most of us, but it's, uh, we've been using different types of blocks and being created, but we've also utilized, you know, in, in on certain occasions, different ERAS protocols for different surgeries. And also uh, we've been using, um, you know, a bunch of different medications. We've used Zen Relief here. We've been piloting that medication here. Um, and we're using installations and different types of infusions. We've started utilizing a lot more of Presidex uh, in the hospital. 
Um, ketamine is making another run for its money. It, it used to be the bad drug to give, and now it's becoming more common sp in specific cases. So give us an explanation about how Presidex and ketamine work differently. My mother, Judy's listening, so she's interested, but she didn't go to medical school, so we got to give it to her. Um, uh, ketamine's MDA, so ketamine doesn't work as much on the mu receptors. Um, there's a lot involved with, uh, you know, the, the respiratory depression that comes with ketamine. It actually alleviates that. There's a lot that occurs with um, your blood pressure, right, or your intracranial pressure, um, so there's a lot of benefits that come with it when you use it. It's a different mechanism, uh, and they're not as and they're not as sedated as well, depending on what dose you're using uh, for which patients. So that's pretty cool. Presidex is dexmedomidine. Presidex, if you're in the pharmacy world or you're in you've been in this world, it's similar to clonidine, but it's more selective. It's an alpha two agonist. Um, and it really works really well. But it, it, initially, we used it just in spine cases um, so we can wake them up versus giving propofol and do the neurological checks. But now it's used for everything. It has its analgesic effects, the sedative effects, even for alcohol withdrawal now they're using it. So interesting. So a couple of different medications that, that have a different mechanism of action than what we would typically see with opioids, for example. You mentioned the mu receptor, which is where the opioids attach to. So it's functioning in different ways. Uh, and then you sort of use a combination of these things, and then you minimize the opioids, which are addictive. You know, Presidex and ketamine are not going to necessarily be addictive. They don't have those, you know, same issues that we're concerned about. You mentioned Zin Relief. I did a total knee replacement this morning on a patient. Uh, we operated on her at 730 uh, she had an adductor canal block with uh, a regional anesthetic, and then we use uh, uh, Zen Relief in, inside the knee, which is the gel that we put in, which is a long-acting anesthetic. And she's, she looked at me an hour after her surgery, smiling at me, fully dressed, you know, couldn't couldn't be happier. We did a little quick video together, and bada-bing, she's out into the car and on her way home. So really remarkable, you know, how far we've come, you know, even when you started, right, you know, Patients were spending three days in the hospital, and then they go to rehab for a week after a knee replacement. It's unbelievable how much how different it is now. Everything is turning ambulatory, especially with the you know it's it's becoming more of an ambulatory game. And then you start having to think about reimbursement with patient care. Um, it's it's changing, and I think it continues to change. Yeah, no, I think that there's you know no people no, nobody wants to go to the big white building with sick patients in it, right? The hospital, everybody wants to be done, especially with COVID, we recognized, you know, why do you want to have a, a knee arthroscopy next to someone that has, you know, some sort of an infection, right? You want to be done, healthy people should be done in a healthy place away from the hospital. So there's been a lot of moves. And I think that, you know, pharmacy is so important in that we can't just send people home and just say, you're going to be okay. You got to provide them a, a pain solution so that they're comfortable uh, in the process. One of the things that I see that really needs to be fixed or, or sort of be worked on is the efficacy gap. You know, we're pretty good now, you know, with Zin Relief, we get out to about three days, liposomal bupivacaine, depending on who you talk to as well, you know, uh, as well as far as that time. But what about, you know, three days now, one of the companies I'm really excited about is Gate Science, which is developing a catheter that will allow regional anesthetic to go through as well, but also has neuromodulation, uh, which will help to reduce, uh, you know, pain around those nerves for upwards of perhaps 30, you know, 60 days. Any thoughts as far as that's concerned? We haven't used it, heard of it, 
really good innovation. Um, most of our, uh, I'm not sure if that's typically, we've been using the, um, the, the outpatient catheters, mm-hmm. um, with, with a bunch of its complications, of course, it's, it has pros and cons. Um, but it's absolutely something we are open to. I mean, there's so many different technologies coming out and medications coming out. The hardest part is funneling through which is beneficial and which isn't, um, and patient safety. Yeah, I mean, the No Pain Act, I think, is going to be pretty interesting, right? You're familiar with the No Pain yeah. Act. It was written into the omnibus uh, spending bill, so it came through as law now in January, which is truly going to open up the possibility of you know reimbursement for opioid alternative uh, treatment options in that perioperative window. So it'll be interesting to see what type of new devices and things are going to play their way down through the list. I'm sure you're involved with some companies that would like your expertise. Absolutely. Yeah, no, fantastic. So, um, you know, we're just sort of thinking aloud at this point, you know, so where do you think we're going? What's the next stage or phase of of pain management within the world that you're seeing that's going to really help our patients as we progress uh, through through the rest of the next few years? Uh, I think telemedicine and, you know, digital health is really the future. And I know they're bringing up AI a lot. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that, but I know that eventually we'll get there. But I think, you know, it's funny, we keep thinking of newer medications, which which there's some great ones. But, you know, sometimes going back to the basics of giving acetaminophen and ibuprofen on discharge or utilizing ketorolac when you can and going back to the older medications, and you know, actually are extremely beneficial. So I think I think what it's going to come down to for the future is a combination. And I think it's going to take the surgeon, it's going to take the anesthesiologist, and it's going to take the pharmacy in a collaborative effort to figure out what protocol works best for that specific procedure. No, I think that's exceptionally well said, right? I think that's where we had some real problems as we were trying to change the paradigm of post-operative pain management, the disconnect of the pharmacy, the disconnect of the anesthesiologist wanting to do it their way and the surgeon wanting to do it their way. I think that Zev Kane, a dear friend of mine, uh, who m- many people know within the, the value-based management and the perioperative uh, college, really talks about his perioperative home and bringing all of the team members together to make sure that everyone is providing that same message uh, so that patients can effectively, safely undergo surgery intervention and hopefully not become addicted to opioids. You know, one thing that I usually like to talk about that I would love to for whoever's listening to really think about is if you are in an organization and you don't have an opioid stewardship committee, um, really, really, really consider it. I mean, you know, Joint Commission is coming in and asking questions about this. The reason why I say this is you can take a pain medication to PNT, which is pharmacy and therapeutics, the police of the organization of bringing meds in. And you're going to get, you're going to have one, maybe two specialists in pain on that committee. You can have the pediatrician, the oncologist, you know, whoever it is on the committee. And I think having the specialists 15 or 20 in a room from different disciplines review a pain medication, new or old, or a protocol, and then accept it and bring it up to the pharmacy and therapeutics committee makes the world of a difference because when it gets there, they know that it was approved by the professionals or the experts in this field. And it makes it a lot easier to consolidate or at least to pass things through. No, I think that's absolutely wonderful and sound advice. I think that, you know, Jawad, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. 
uh, giving us a, the unique experience of a clinical pharmacist in a large hospital setting and the important work that you and your teams are doing to contribute to the healthcare and also to really help to try and uh, minimize the exposure of opioids to our perioperative patients. And so it's really been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm the first pharmacist on the show, Scott. So you are the official Ortho Show alumni <laughs> pharmacist of, of the year. There's no question about it, brother. We hey, appreciate you so me. much. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.